Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Voiced, a podcast from the Center for Ethics as Study in Human Value, University of Pardubice, Czech Republic. My name is Patrick Keenan. I will be hosting today. In this episode, we have brought together some of the Center's researchers to talk about what research at the Center is about, how it is done, and how you all think philosophy should be done. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Okay, uh, I'm Niklas Forsberg. I'm Andrei Beran. I'm Kamila Patsovska. And I'm Nora Hamelainen. Let us begin by talking a little bit about the general idea of the Center. What is its general idea, and where did that idea come from? Who would like to start? Uh, I'll try to start in a bit... Uh, <laughs> in a bit formal manner, because, you know, the center has a statement of its mission, so I will quote from it, more or less. So, what's the center? It's been founded in 2017. The full name is the Center for Ethics as Study in Human Value, and it's a research center which is focusing on issues surrounding the distinctive value of human life and the ways in which this value may be either recognized or overlooked in both personal and political contexts. Uh, and at the center's core, uh, there is the effort to address questions pertaining to the nature and value of humanity in relation to a range of personal and political issues, including attitudes towards marginalized groups and issues surrounding populism, nationalism, religious conflict, migration, the refugee crisis, and a changing European identity. When you hear me reading this list, it may be a bit unclear to you what it is that we are actually doing. And it's it's not altogether clear to me when I'm reading the list too. <laughs> uh, but I hope that one of the purposes of, of this talk should be to bring some more clarity into what, what these, what these uh, platitudes uh, what these <coughs> apparent platitudes mean. So it's a, uh, what we're interested in is, is an ethical research, an ethical research which wants to engage with some, uh, deep going and serious questions. And we, we want to engage with them in, in a, in a way that is not disconnected from the present time and from the changes that our societies are undergoing. And one more thing that I might add is that the center is based on a project that is being funded from the European uh, Regional Development Fund and that we are in multiple ways supervised by our Ministry of Education. And so that's one part of, of uh, the introduction. And I guess someone else may continue with characterizing what it is that, um, what it looks like to yeah. be at the center. Now, whenever I think that if one looks at this list of questions, it's quite clear that these are, you know, very burning topics today. And it's that already signals them one of the ambitions of the center to actually address topics that are, you know, really relevant to address at this point. Um, but I, th I think that we still have the, I believe that we can do this in a somewhat different way than many others do. I mean, um, one of the things that we do differently, I think, is that we work from 
without you know feeling that we need to adhere to one tradition or one school of thought um and i mean we're a motley crew in a, in a in a way um coming from a wide variety of traditions and and sometimes we have different interests and all of us i think address these concept concepts or topics in in very different ways which makes it very fruitful for us to be together i think yeah maybe one more thing to add is uh, to emphasize the diversity of of researchers in the in the center because we are quite a big team uh, and uh, we really come from very diverse traditions we have historians of philosophy we have people who have been doing research in continental philosophy but everyone somehow tries to address uh, issues in a way that is intelligible uh, to everyone else so I, i i find that very important well that's one thing i think is very rewarding too that you, you when you're in a seminar room you you need to be able to speak to people from phenomenology from mainstream analytic philosophy from various backgrounds from religious studies and so on and so forth that you um that we you you're forcing yourself to to talk about these issues in a way that you know is jargon free and not locked into a, a, tra- a tradition which makes it easier to address the specific topics rather than the most famous and prestigious debates i think well you you make it all sound like we are a very very diverse crew but in fact there are certain threads that run through at least parts of the um group um certain sort of theoretical inspirations uh, that perhaps could be mentioned ancient philosophy as of course one and the application of of ancient thought in in modern moral philosophy um wittgenstein um iris murdoch uh, is a common theorist for many of us in the background and i think there is also a kind of philosophical engagement with insights from neighboring fields um that's the common Yeah. thread yeah. for for many um a kind of tendency to find good stuff in anthropology sociology history etc to to bring into moral philosophy um and most of us of course are moral philosophers or are currently i think actually everybody working at the center are moral philosophers by training um so there are these sort of threads that go through um that sort of keep our work um it mutually intelligible uh, to to each other that sort of these kind of bridging personalities in 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 philosophy or or bridging traditions in philosophy that we have yeah. um in common yeah. so i think those are make actually quite um quite a big difference for for the attempt to bring in different traditions yeah um, so i mean we have one of our researchers anthony fredriksson he's um working mainly in phenomenology now but he has a very strong background in in Wittgenstein from his departmental his previous uh, previous departmental affiliations etc so i think these kinds of examples um can can explain something of the spirit of of in which philosophy is being done and also sort of explain something of the kind of ethos of of ground up um work uh, that that we're engaged in yeah No, I think that's true. Um, I mean, I also think that you know, when we have scholars 
you know, s- stretching from, say, John Rawls to Levinas, that's a fairly broad spectrum to begin with. But th- you're absolutely right that there are a lot of things that unite us, um, even if we come from different backgrounds. Um, and one of the things is perhaps that, I, I mean, I think we all think that these problems are very, these kinds of difficulties that we're facing are extremely important. But we, I, I think that most of us also think that a lot of philosophy fails to address them uh, properly, and one wants to be able to do it better. I mean, we're not the only ones talking about these issues. Well, yeah, so I, I think what, what you're pointing at, there is a kind of methodological concern. There is a question of how to deal with contemporary issues in philosophy. I mean, of course, philosophers have always dealt with contemporary issues and are in many ways a reflection of their contemporary times. But but I think for many people who have a more engaged way of doing philosophy, contemporary, mainly analytic philosophy has seemed to have some, like contain some impediments for that kind of engaged work. So they're the kind of, theoretical styles of working that many of us have been trained in do, do not have not seemed to be the most appropriate to mm. to to apply to contemporary um, burning ethical issues in ways that engage those issues in a way. and i think so so i think many of us are working with these kinds of disciplinary impediments um, that we've found ourselves in in our own work yeah i i had something on the tip of my tongue but i forgot what it was um, it, I mean, it's 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 the it's the methodological point that, of course, uh, it's not that our topics, the topics that we focus on, are somehow unique that that no other philosophers would talk about them. That's simply not true. But we would we would like to think that we are prioritizing the topics uh, and we we place them on 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 the first place. Rather than a, a rather than a set of theoretical presuppositions that we should uh, we we are think we we commit ourselves to the approach that we would like to start with reflecting on the topic or the example first, and of course then we employ all sorts of theoretical apparatus and and conceptual tools that we know that we that we brought in from our you know previous training and previous philosophical experience, but. Uh, we would like to avoid the deeply ingrained tendency of of some philosophies to to first construct and formulate a self-contained philosophical theory, and then to simply apply it on whichever topic one might stumble across. We think there is something problematic with with proceeding like that. I mean, we could. It might be helpful to think about a couple of examples here. I mean, if you look at a lot of philosophy that's been done on these topics today. They start by saying, well, there are three established theory, theoretical strands in the philosophy of love, and they are blah, 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 blah. And then they start, you know, talking about arguments and counterarguments for or against these various theories. Or there are five major strands in the theory of citizenship. And then they start, you know, elaborating the pros and cons of those theories. But I mean, our ambition would rather be to start them. Well, why is love a problem for philosophy today or in philosophy or in society today? Or why is citizenship? Where does this problem come from? You know, and let theory, as it were, grow out naturally out of those questions where you actually see the problems, you know. 
And that's something we try to teach our PhD students as well, that you, you start with what's actually troubling you. You know, don't start with the debate. The debate should come in, you know, at the, at the second stage. And I think that's really important for us. Mm. Yeah, I actually want to throw in a random question. Uh, you mentioned philosophy of love. Are there certain philosophies of dot, dot, dot that the center tends to think are uh, more valuable for the project as a whole? Well, I think that that might actually be a topic where we within the center kind of disagrees. Uh, I'm of the opinion that whenever somebody says philosophy of and then fills in a, a noun, uh, it tends to misrepresent the matter. I, I don't think that the question of love, for example, is, is a question that has one topic only because that, that notion itself is always tied to emotions, it's tied to rationality, it's tied to the relation between an I and a thou and, and, you know, and to language and how we talk about love in various different contexts. And, and that tends to be one of the problems with the various discourses that we find in academic philosophy today, that people are, are reluctant to move freely between various aspects of philosophy. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't want to say that, I mean, it's so easy to think of love as, as a topic that belongs in a, in a subdivision of, of ethics which in turn is a subdivision of philosophy. But I, I think that, if, you know, if you do a serious reflection of love, you might have to be able to read lots of novels, see films, think about epistemology, you know, think about ontology, think about, you know, religion. All kinds of things come into it if you want to, you know, actually tend to the kinds of complexities that a phenomenon such as love involves. Um, that's my view, but I, I do think that not all all of us at the center will, would have that view, but I, I think that's one way I look at it, at least. As well as what, what you're pointing at here is, is a tendency towards compartmentalization in contemporary academia, contemporary philosophy, which is, of course, is a is a consequence of the conditions under which people work that they need to they need to define a body of text that they have to read in order to be able to contribute. And this, this sort of, the sheer quantity of things to read out there uh, creates a, a higher pressure to, to create these bubbles or these sort of confined areas of discourse. And of course, I mean, I'm not, I don't think any one of us would say that People, philosophers in other places would think that philosophy of love, for instance, or philosophy of citizenship or, or the ethics of migration, etc., are con confined, well-contained um, topics. But, but there are certain pressures in, in contemporary academic work that create these or, or press people into these debates where mm -hmm. the defined positions are, say, five or three or... Um, and you have to contribute to an, a, a relatively narrow discussion. And you might actually find that, oh, the, the really good stuff on this is found somewhere else. Um, you want to say something about migration, you look at the discussions on philosophy of, of migration, and you find that, well, this is not where the action is. The action is somewhere else, in some other field, for instance. And then there's a question of where to contribute, how to do that, um, what is your academic standing? And I think these are sort of the kinds of, of things that we want to face and address in a way. Um, trying, it, I mean, it's not an attempt to slip out of the 
work the general universal working conditions of academics where you need to make definite contributions to, to a kind of scientific or academic field. Um, but there's, there's a kind of general questions of how to do that, uh, how to follow your, your interest and how to follow your sensibility or where the interesting stuff happens while at the same time making comprehensible, um, helpful contributions to existing academic discussions. So it's a kind of negotiation between uh, following your, your curiosity and, um, and being as a, an academic, I suppose. Mm. Nice. Um, so I'll go into the next question, uh, which might help give the center more of its Uh, more of its shape. Uh, the question is, if one would look at just some of the topics that are listed in the project description, uh, such as nationalism, the refugee crisis, populism, and so on, uh, these are all what what you might call uh, want to call hot topics. And thus, you can think that there are a lot of uh, academics and philosophers discussing them. So what distinguishes the Center for Ethics from other ways of dealing with topics such as these? Well, I think that these are precisely the kinds of topics that we have been addressing uh, um, just now. Um, I mean, one one thing that Nora mentioned, is, I mean, two things that Nora mentioned was, uh, one was speci spe specialization um, that comes with a professionalized, you know, setup of contemporary academic philosophy, that you're supposed to be an expert in a field, and that forces people to narrowing down their research topics and, and you know, makes, you know, if, if, I, if, you, if you discover that you're interested in love, you just start looking at various papers and journal articles published in the most prestigious journals about love. And, and that kind of narrows down your, your, your vision, I think. Um, and you might be, I mean, what, what, we hope to do is, is to learn how to be, you know, look in places where one didn't expect to find the answer and, and to, to be ready for that in a way, I think, which I think is very, very difficult. And this places some demands on the researchers as well, because, well, I mean, if you get really interested in a philosophical topic, say, it can be love, I mean, it can be migration, it can be the concept of knowledge, right? You start... That alone, you know, narrows down your 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 vision and your your ability to perceive what's actually there. I think because you start, you, you, it becomes like code words that you just go looking for them. Whereas, you know, it might be that you know the problems you have with love, or the problems you have with refugee crisis, or the problems you have with knowledge might be, you know rooted at a completely different place. It might be into confused conceptions of what an emotions are, if you want to think about epistemology, or it might be um, questions about how language slowly has changed over the last two decades, if it concerns the refugee crisis. Uh, and to really get to the bottom of problems, one needs to, I think, be, be open to see that... <laughs> I, I need a very broad outlook. And if I, if I think that my topic is one single topic, that I'm going to write about love and the relation between you and me and, or so on and so forth, you're going to, you're going to have a very narrow vision once you approach those topics. And I think that's, um, that's one of the challenges that we're facing, that it's, it's very hard to have a strong interest 
and be prepared to look at very strange places at the same time. Or, you know, expect the unexpected is very difficult, I think. I think there is a very good example of this uh, lack of broadness in uh, approaching the contemporary issues, which is the problem of populism. Because if you, or maybe, maybe nationalism as well, but I think if you want to understand contemporary populism, you really need to understand emotions that underlie it. But uh, it seems to me that in a contemporary polit- political philosophy, there is uh, some kind of delay in investigation of political emotions if you uh, if you there is surprisingly little uh, research being done uh, that bridges uh, uh, political theory and political emotions but if you don't have a good conception of political emotions how are you supposed to uh, understand what's going on in, in populism so i have been trying to to uh, write something on populism and i have been shocked by the by the scarcity of literature done like like in this sort of borderline area so the research that has been done in ethics like for the last 50 years that like people are starting to understand that emotions are important for moral life this still hasn't been done for for the domain of politics and political philosophy so i think that's a quite a good example of uh, you know how um, you have to connect and bridge different areas of philosophy in order to understand one particular phenomenon yeah i think that's very true Andre? actually this is this example is kind of funny because when you when you are visiting conferences talking about populism and nationalism, uh, you can hear a, a lot more uh, interesting stuff from political theorists rather than rather than political philosophers because you know political theorists or you know political scientists that that's the proper term those are people who are actually studying <laughs> the phenomena of populism so so they can they can tell you all sorts of really illuminating stories about what the particular populists are saying and doing in the popular in the particular countries or or a particular context and and for me uh, this may be that uh, this this uh strange uh lack of of interest on the part of political philosophy when it tries to talk about populism is that it's it's not it doesn't start with is with 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 its topic while the political scientists are starting with their topic. I mean, that's, they are r- right in the middle of the phenomena they want to talk about. And, uh, Niklas, you, you mentioned, you know, that, that we, we do have PhD students at the center and we are trying to somehow explain to them this, 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 uh, precarious situation in which a young academic finds oneself, uh, that you, it is, oh, you always have to narrow yourself down. Of course, that somehow whatever topic you would like to talk about is somehow, you know, stretched through a whole field of philosophy, but it's not, it's not, it's not always 100% true. I mean, once you're, <laughs> once you want to talk about the topic, you, it's not that you are talking about the whole of philosophy whatsoever. So you are na- narrowing yourself down, but you, you, you need to, to do that in the spirit of, of curiosity about the topic. I mean, if it's important for you, you are following it wherever it leads you. And it may be unexpected places, as you mentioned. Yeah. 
But there are external pressures here as well, don't you think, that comes from the institutionalized um, dispensation of, of contemporary philosophy now that, you know, that we, we, I think that all senior researchers are also struggling with this. And then we try to, you know, think about that in, in, in conversation with our PhD students as well, about how, how, to, how do we manage this situation where you, on the one hand, uh, the pressure that comes from, from uh, the institutionalized side of philosophy is that you should write academic papers that are short, that contribute to debate. And when you do that, you, you know, you, you're going to do all the mistakes that we talked about. And then we need to find ways of, of writing and thinking uh, and that in, on the one hand, you know, takes the debate, uh, debate, the debates that are present seriously and engages with them while at the same time, uh, feeling free to investigate in, in, in ways that are not just, you know, responses to the current, uh, positions. And I think that's a very difficult, uh, task that we have at all levels at the center. Yeah, one of the challenges here is, is that, of course, anyone who reads different kinds of discussions, uh, and reads within different fields of research will, in a sense, within them have several different potential audiences. And the question, who am I writing to? When, when something like the the importance of emotions in in um, in, in looking at, at populism is, I think, obvious for a very large majority um, of of people working on populism. But then you find islands of of work where 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 this is far from obvious. And then the question is, who am I addressing? So suppose I mean, I'm not. This is not my topic, but the question is. Who, who should one be addressing then? Mm. And how does one address people so that it, it doesn't sound like one is um, say, just saying the obvious? Um, so to identify, so, to, so it, takes a, it, it, it takes a kind of care in, in, um, in selecting the audience, selecting the venue, selecting uh, um, the nature of the critique, uh, etc. So there's a, there's a whole a whole bunch of things that have to be juggled in, in, in different ways. And I suppose many of us have, have grown up with this idea that we need to publish in philosophy journals, in the most prestigious philosophy journals in our field, etc. And realizing at a, quite an early stage that this will not be the way to be able to do uh, whatever we want to do, I think. I, I think this is, for many of us, it's been um, a tough negotiation uh, with ourselves, to, uh, and then also sort of um, a struggle to find the venues and places where different kinds of articles find their proper homes and find their proper audiences. Yeah, I think that's right, and, and um, it strikes me as well that you know, as you try to publish papers, you go for peer review, and given that you know, the, most of the reviewers are are also trained in this tradition where you're supposed to think that a good uh, philosophical paper is a contribution to an ongoing debate. And then here we are, you know, there's one researcher of us that, you know, has found immensely interesting material in, in an anthropological study or, you know, in sociology or in just, you know, media studies or whatever. And, and the results has might have very little to do with the existing debates. And then you write a paper and you relate it to the, in the way it's possible. And then you might get reviews that, well, you forgot this big name, you know, and all this, and the, the lineup stars for you. And the, the, uh, 
you know, of philosophy today and says that, well, you're, you're not contributing if you don't relate to Nussbaum or Timothy Williamson or whoever it is, right? Uh, and and you feel like, well, I can do that, of course, but it will be a footnote which says that this has very little to do with blah, 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 right? Uh, and it seems you know, it's frustrating to... to um, to be in this position where you think that the most interesting things about the most interesting things about these topics do not, you know, figure in the debate, and then you try to say that, then you'll get the response that, well, you're not particip- participating in the debate, and I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, that's right in a way, but you know, this might still be, you know, the most interesting feature. You know, it seems like the quality of the research is somehow somehow gone missing in in. in in thinking about research now that, you know, there are these external parameters that people tend to look at first and then, uh, you know, only at the second stage will they perhaps look at what's actually being said. And I think that's very depressing in a way. Well, that's, that's, that's the proper requirement that, that you have to actually mention verbatim and, you know, all the, philos- all the important philosophers that are not engaging with your topic, yes. but could be, <laughs> could be thought to be engaging with your topic. So you have to mention them yeah. in your analysis of the background of, of your question before you can even start. Yeah. Okay, no, no. So that's, that, that's, that's, you know, that's a, a cartoonish simplification, but there is something to that. Well, it's a podcast. <laughs> we can allow ourselves that. Yeah, but we should be fair because this problem with publications doesn't exist only in philosophy. It's, no, of true. course, uh, like a general problem of contemporary academia in all fields, including mathematics. So, so uh, you know, the, the, this pressure to publish and to be to be assessed uh, by the number of publications and by, by the number of quotations is just perverting yeah. research uh, worldwide and uh, sort of. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> across disciplines. Absolutely. And it's clearly a problem that's spiraling at this moment, you know, because, you know, if one paper mentions one philosopher, the next pa- two papers will mention that philosopher, and then it builds up. And then you'll get to a point where you can't say anything about this topic without mentioning that p- p- specific person. And you would have to found your own journal. Right. Um, <laughs> the problem is that there is no shortage of journals now. I that's one problem. That's the trouble. Well, my my intuition is is that philosophers, compared to people in many other fields, tend to reference very few other people when talking about a topic. So actually, I mean, I quite often find that when reviewers ask me to to um, refer to to this or that, I mean, sometimes it's annoying because because you are asked to refer to some very obvious sources that everybody are know anyway but sometimes i find it very helpful because i think these kinds of comments that you should maybe you should look at this discussion i actually often discovered new stuff that i've overlooked and it can be really helpful and and i think there there is um so i think there is an important point in in even even if we sort of all should try to find or even if we try to find our own ways through these topics uh, there is something valuable in, in, in these kinds of nods towards different uh, discussions. But sometimes I find that the demand posed by journals or reviewers is not that, oh, you should acknowledge stuff, but rather that you should let this discussion uh, define the terms of your discussion. And I think that's a very different thing. And I think there's a, an important line that one should be quite 
um, careful not to cross. It's always mm -hmm. good to acknowledge, and not just the big names, not this, but any everything uh, one has read on a topic is is a potential material for footnotes, etc. I mean, always acknowledge more because that's helpful for the readers. But 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 not let other people's views about the topic um, determine the agenda. Yeah. And, and I think there's that's an important balance because sometimes when you acknowledge things, it sounds seems like you're sort of pulled to let the things you acknowledge um, um, re reform your agenda. But I mean, if we look at if you look at how, how people in some other field, I mean, sometimes when I read stuff in the social sciences, I'm just struck by how easily they reference philosophers, for instance. You know, you have this long line of, of names in parentheses including Foucault or Levinas or whatever and it's really unclear in the end how exactly their positions but you know there's some kind of they've said something in that specific work which somehow relates to the topic so they're kind of this kind of nodding a practice of nodding a practice of waving to each other that I think is a it can be helpful and and I think so so I don't so I don't think our issue at the center is that we don't want to refer to um, people in philosophical debate. No, clearly not. No. But, but rather that we don't want, um, I think we're most of, we, we, we're a bunch of philosophers who don't want to let the most prestigious discussions about certain topics determine what our interests in those topics should be. Yeah, that's, I think you're making a very important point here because, I mean, when one says that we should start with what really concerns you, what your problem is, and the debate should come in secondarily, um, that really doesn't mean that debates are irrelevant, right? It, it, I mean, I think that no one in the history of philosophy has managed to, you know, just sit down and speak his or her heart and it turned out to be good philosophy. I think that's just a false idea that... that um, I mean, the, the point is rather that, you know, find the problems where they are, and then you'll have to look at an, a thousand things, and certainly not just one, namely yourself, right? So it, it has to be, um, it's very, it, it's, it needs to be emphasized, I think, that, you know, this idea of starting with the problems rather than debate does not mean that you're entitled to sidestep the debates or not engage with them, or it's rather the encouragement that you might need to look at more debates than you think you have. I mean, otherwise you'll get extremely one-sided in your own focus, and, and that's clearly to the detriment of your own work. I think that's an important point you're making. I think it, it it's related to what exactly is a topic? Because when we are trying to, to teach our PhD students to focus on, on, on the problem that they are interested in, of course, it doesn't mean that they, they shouldn't read the existing debates, but very often, I mean, young academics are encouraged. Sometimes they are actually making this decision intentionally to focus on a very, very narrowly defined area, very enough narrow, narrowly defined question about which it is still possible to read pretty much everything that's been written. Yeah. So underlying would be the idea that there is this topic which can be exhaustively described by this limited self-contained field of debate and I can read everything which is in the field. I mean, and if I, if I have read everything, I have read everything that I need to know and I don't have to look elsewhere. And once I have read everything, I can... I can contribute my 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 tiny bits to to that stream, and it's just not it just doesn't work that way. So 
So you have to you have to look into the debates that are connected to the problem that you want to follow, but you are not doing that for the purpose of of exhausting everything that's been written about the topic with a clear idea that there is a demarcation line line between what's relevant and what's not because it's it's often unclear. So you 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 need to know uh, you need to know what other people are saying at least because you 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 need to be able to to criticize them in a reasonable and sane manner and and you can't do that unless you acquaint yourself with with what they're saying but that's not i mean that's not the purpose i mean it's not the your your endeavor the effort that 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 you invest into into getting familiar with the debate uh should serve you know, should serve some other purpose than just, you know, getting acquainted with the field. And when you have done the task, you have your area of specialization covered, um, as, as it's called in, in the CVs. And, 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 and you are then one of the big boys or girls for that matter. I, I suppose one of the things with, with philosophy is that you never, I, I suppose, or, or sort of given the ethos of the center, in a way, you never become grown up. You never, um, you become never become one of the big boys. Of course, perhaps because we're not um, up there yet. But <laughs> it's it's also because we um, there is a kind of idea that you're never you're never done. Yeah. You're never done with a field. I mean, you're done with a field or you're done with an area when you grow so tired of it that you don't want to contribute it anymore. But it's it's not, you, you don't exhaust, I mean, in philosophy, you don't exhaust topics. You just move move out of them sometimes. I wanted to react to something previous that has been said, so I don't know whether I should. So, please do. Yeah, maybe it's, it's a diversion, but I had the feeling that the... For for me, the most uh, uh, problematic thing uh, with e- engaging with contemporary literature, like with mainstream literature, is that properly engage with it would mean, and it's actually related to something Nora was saying, w- would mean taking over the language in which this literature is carried out. And for me, this is profoundly problematic because uh at least in the more theoretical uh, areas of moral philosophy, this language is incredibly technical. And these basic terms such as blame, responsibility, are defined in a way that, according to my sense, don't reflect the, uh, the their ordinary meaning anymore. And the, the, the discussion becomes so abstracted from anything that's happening in real life that uh, I can't connect with the discussion and with with the way this this uh, research is carried out. So, like, I, I solved that problem for myself uh, in a very particular manner, and I'm, I'm sure Nora wouldn't approve. But I just I just don't engage with this literature anymore. I I, I write my paper, I w- write what I want to write, and then I look whether I have some overlaps with with people who write on the same things. That I know because I've read them, and I I add them like uh, only retrospectively because uh, because starting with this discussion would mean completely diverting what I have I wanted to be saying. So um, 
I think there is a more profound uh, problem with uh, uh, contemporary debates, which 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 is connected with the language, uh, basic concepts, and uh, style of of the, of uh, mainstream philosophy, which uh, uh, I found problematic. And uh, uh, yeah, that's actually one of the topics we. Wanted to speak about as well, so sort of bridge, sort of exhausted myself in this long sentence. <laughs> as Camilla has just mentioned, uh, problems sometimes seem to get distorted when tackled by academic philosophy. How would you all say that you try to avoid that? Um, I think you're, that's a very difficult but important question as well. I mean, I, what, what Camilla was suggesting was that when you enter a problem from the perspective of a debate, debate has already set some limits to what you are supposed to be talking about. And that does not merely mean the subject matter, but it also means, you know, how the concepts are inflected in that debate. So you're, you're kind of um, delimited from the beginning of, of how to understand the very concepts that you're understanding. And what I found interesting here is that well, this was also suggested by Camilla I think that when you start looking you know in ver many various different fields of discourse or genres or writing or even film you'll, you'll discover that the frames set by the debate kind of pushes a lot of reality out of the discussion and uh, I think that what what one should learn to do is to, to bring that back bring back the you know the real life of our words into the discussion uh and just t learn to attend to the manifolds of, cons uh, of how our words are used and the many various situations in which they are formed and not let, as it were, a pre-existing debate, which by nature kind of delimits the conceptual space within which you're free to roam. Um, and, and don't let that set the tone or... or delimit the way you do research because you're going to end up not talking about the concept that you're actually wanting to investigate but you need more more of a more of an abstraction or a limited very limited area of that concept and i think that's um that's an extremely difficult lesson to learn and an extremely difficult practice to engage in because it requires quite a lot of you and it's very tempting as well to be you know when you read a bunch of really good philosophers that write about a subject and they intentionally or unintentionally, they will, as it were, frame the concepts that you're working with uh, and that will goad you in your, in your thinking. And, and it's very hard to see that temptation even for, for oneself when, as one is writing, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, there is a, there is a practical diffi difficulty in bringing one's own perspective into academic text, because in, in a way, I mean, as we have been educated, we're not supposed to be personal um, and we're not supposed to be anecdotal and we're not supposed to be, I mean, we're, we're supposed to bring in examples, but it's not always easy to find the good examples that have the right kind of, you know, the right kinds of examples from the right kinds of sources. So sometimes you see people resorting to the, using the same examples all over and over again from the same novels, for instance, yeah. to make certain points because because some uh, prominent philosophers have given those examples a certain kind of legitimacy as examples of a, some, something that's considered an important phenomena or picking examples from the novels that already influential philosophers have used 
in order because just bringing in your writing text where you bring in what you see as obvious when you look around in the world um, as part of the philosophical discourse that requires skill that requires confidence and that often requires that to hit the right notes mm-hmm. somehow with your your cases examples etc um, so so it's a kind of craft as well that I, I think most of us have not been taught because we've more or less been taught to um, to play the game I mean play some games that's already out there we definitely haven't been taught that <laughs> Yeah, but I suppose the point is that this is not a game. It's, it's, it's about try to, trying to word the world. I mean, it's sort of about trying to make your, make your best to talk about things that matter for you um, in a, for people who supposedly have read roughly the same books and have some similar frame of reference and hope that you will find some resonance there for your ways of being the world. Uh, so, sorry for my interruption. I'm just uh, I'm just laughing at your assumption that we have been taught in the same way, all of us. But like most Czech uh, members of the center have uh, have di- have received very different education. We have studied lots of Plato, Kant, and we definitely haven't been taught how to write. <laughs> so, so 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 this tyranny of of mainstream academic. Uh, Analytic philosophy is something that we can see a bit like from a distance, because uh, if we have been tyrannized by something, it's like endless interpretations of Kant and and uh, uh, endless attempts to uh, to interpret Heidegger. So, <laughs> so we we, ha- we we know what a tyrannic means, but. <laughs> No, I think that's extremely valuable, you know, being here at the center as well, that we, not only do we come from different traditions or upbringings in, in philosophy, but we also come from different countries and we have different customs and we have different, you know, academic training. And, and that it helps to see, you know, that other people are actually not, you know, seeing things from your perspective. And it's such a valuable lesson to get, uh, I think. Now, also this problem with uh, mainstream analytic philosophy, it's interesting that I think this problem with language and with the style of writing doesn't exist in this form in continental philosophy. It has its problems, I, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, um, I mean, the endless interpretations of interpretations. But It, it has got an extremely scholarly and exegetical yeah. in, in many corners of continental but philosophy. But you're not trapped in technical concepts in the way that analytical philosophy is? Mm, well, yes and no, I think. It's not called technical concepts, but you are trapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think people are trapped. I mean, I think there is, this, I mean, for many of us, I think we have a strong experience sometimes of confinement, of being trapped. But actually, if you look at philosophy today, it's quite diverse. Yeah. And and I think it's interesting to reflect over the actual diversity of philosophy today, the many places um, that do not follow the, the, the kinds of um, formula that we've been discussing, um, and, 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 and yet this experience of, of being um, obliged to write in certain ways as a kind of mismatch, but that has something to do with status, it has something to do with um, what is considered leading philosophy mm-hmm. what is the kind of philosophy that can can um, aspire for a place in the top journals um, etc but but if you we look at what is actually being done uh, in philosophy we have vast areas like feminist philosophy and feminist ethics where 
people actually, many people have very similar sensibilities to those that many of us um, um, have in these matters and, and a very sort of ground up sensibility and a very um, strong desire to go into different places um, where ethically significant things happen, although they don't necessarily have ready words for um, saying what those things are. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I think so. Do, so, this I think this is an inter interesting relationship between the actual plurality of philosophy today, and yet this feeling that we are, um, unless you do it in a certain way, you're doing it wrong, um, mm. and and the sort of struggle that I think many people go through and and continue going through to find a way that um, wh where they're sort of can be heard, accepted, and understood, um, although they do not fo follow some formula of how things should be done. Yeah. Maybe an important message out of this is that it's much more difficult to actually find your place in uh, in philosophy nowadays because it's so so diverse and there's so much of it that it uh, it makes like becoming mature in philosophy much more difficult than it used to be when you had just very very obvious field of philosophy and you you just No, I don't know, went to Oxford and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> But now you have so many places and you have to find your your style among all of them and then uh, you know, try to find your own voice among this plurality that it places uh, quite a strain on PhD students uh, if they want to do that properly to actually uh, find themselves as researchers in this in this broad field. Mm. So uh, maybe I could ask a, a final question here uh, as a sort of way to tie things up since we're nearing the end. Uh, so my question is, you've mentioned the value in the diversity of faculty. And so I'm curious what, what you've each personally worked on that you're passionate about and has a home in the center or, or that adds to the overall mission of the center. Who should start? I could start with my list of bizarre topics if you want. <laughs> well you can start with your book about examples I mean, yeah that's, that's the methodological connection immediately it, it has actually it's it's kind of bizarre because i i have been struggling with uh, the lack of uh, examples in much of mainstream philosophical writings and with the way a lot of philosophers are are employing examples in their texts it, it's it always seemed to me that They should be focusing more on them. They should be using more examples. They should actually start their discussion. They, they should let their discussion sort of un un unfold itself from uh, from uh, the background of the example. But then I wrote this book, which is super theoretical, and it actually it is it is a a, a theory of of using examples in thinking, which is difficult to follow because it's extremely abstract in many respects. I I did my best to employ as, as many examples as I could, but... You had quite a lot. There could be more. Anyway, but if I, uh, if I uh, disregard this particular book, I think that, you know, uh, the time at the center uh, gave me the opportunity to... to Uh, think about uh, things because I mean I, I've been employed in, in in various research projects for for the whole of my of my adult academic life and uh, 
Uh, I always had to contribute to this or that theoretical debate somehow. Uh, and now we have, I mean, the agenda of our project actually expects us to, to, to deal with actual topics. So I've been trying to write about, uh, climate crisis and, and, uh, I try, uh, actually, well, uh, I've been trying to write about the COVID pandemics and that's something that will give us a lot to think about, I think in, in the near future, because it's not that, I mean, from one point of view, this could be, this could be, uh, conceived as a, as a narrow, you know, medical ethical issue, but I think it will, it will, uh, the crisis, the pandemics will reveal a lot about, uh, how, you know, we, how people, you know, think about, you know, what society is, what, what, uh, justice is, what, what safety is. I mean, what, what community is. And, uh, we can, we can learn from this example about a lot of things that, that, that may seem unrelated to it at the first sight. Well, for me, I, t I take it that I've always pictured myself as working, you know, at the intersection between the various branches of philosophy where, you know, say theoretical and practical and aesthetics meet. And, and, and I think what has happened to me here is that I, I've, you know, being in, in more or less direct contact with more acute problems, it, it adds a dimension and you, and you start seeing importance of thoughts that you've had and, and things that you've read and how that importance feeds into to fields that you weren't expecting them to see, right? That you start, um, I mean, I come, I'm not an ethicist from the beginning. I was trained as a theoretical philosopher, but as I write about language now, I do, I'm, I'm mostly interested in, in how all the political and moral and um, even juridical changes that we see in the current society pertaining to all these notions that we're suppo supposed to focus on. Um, I mean, that has led me to work a lot more on, you know, slow conceptual changes and, and, and how the morass of our language is, is altering and we're not thinking about it. Um, and I've just completed a book about Austin, which seems like this is, you know, a book about language, but it, it in a certain way, it really isn't because it, it's, I mean, it has that kind of work, you know, cuts through many layers of philosophy. I think that methodologically, the stuff that we've been talking about is present on every page. I think that, you know, thinking about not limiting your understanding of a concept by how it's been defined in a specific discourse is an extremely valuable lesson to learn. And you can see how Austin was pointing us in that direction. And then you start, you know, thinking about how concepts change and the way that philosophers kind of misrepresent them when they feed them into philosophical discourse. And you start relating those to to, to real events and real topics and think about how the political discourse of today actually transform uh, our concepts and thereby in the long run our understanding of what nationality is, what citizenship is, what a refugee is and so on and so forth. And I think that, you know, being in, trying to stay close to these kinds of problems, you know, it, not only is it interesting in itself, but it shows so clearly, I think, that, that um, our problems are never simple and well-defined and, and that's the bloody nature of philosophy that, you know, you, being a philosopher must mean being very uncertain about what good philosophy is. 
I think that kind of is important to stress that if you come to a position where you say that, well, this is what I'm interested in, this is how I want to do it, well, then you're, my guess is that you're on the verge of becoming narrow-minded. And I think that's a very difficult lesson to learn because it, you'll have to fight yourself in, in very peculiar ways. I have a very specific topic that I'm working on. Um, I said I have to wash out that I don't get narrow-minded. I think most <laughs> of my work uh, sort of comes together around questions of moral personhood and what it means to a person in a world which is sort of ethically complex, uh, full of um, conflicting demands, and, and sort of inhabit a moral world and a world of other people, which is constantly changing in different ways. So there's a kind of renegotiation of one's own um, goals, values, ideals, um, a renegotiation of one's own place in the world. And at, at the same time, a kind of communal re renegotiation of the world itself. Um, so I'm, I, I think so, so moral personhood and the change of moral frameworks, the historical change of, of, of our moral life worlds or moral um, context or moral um, ways of um, relating to each other. Um, the, these are the kinds of topics that I'm, I'm working on. And I, I'm afraid that I have a very strong bottom up ground up ethos but in practice I, I think I'm quite very much a philosopher so in the end I always end up sort of thinking <laughs> about the theoretical presuppositions pre, pre and, and uh, of, of, of different ways of working with these things so I, I do tend to, tend to have a, like a, a ground up ethos and 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 do meta philosophy in a way mm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to get away from that and I think in this this um next few years i will increasingly try to i will write more about um but so to say actual hot topics such as um climate change um migration etc because these are examples where these kinds of renegotiations of our moral world are constantly going on and and i'm increasingly finding that i'm i'm confident with with i'm i'm, I'm increasingly confident with my own theoretical tools for handling the kind of renegotiation and looking at it as renegotiation of things that don't, I mean, that there isn't necessarily, a, there are better and worse things. We can do some kind of normative um, judgment over the direction where things are going, et cetera. But these are, it's a kind of a, a world constantly in transit where that we need to seek to, to describe in helpful ways in much in order to uh, enable people, I think, to go through these transitions in a way where they can regain uh, meaningful agency, um, participation, et cetera. So, so I think from, from a very, I mean, the, a kind of rather theoretical thinking about what the moral world is like, what it is to like, be, like to be a moral person in the world uh, of other moral beings and, and these constant negotiations down to the to questions of, of practical agency and enabling people to 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 deal with changes that are inevitable and 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 that will very much change the frames of our day-to-day -day lives where we seek to become certain kinds of people hmm. i think my uh i'm a bit divided about uh, about my answer because my pet topics belong to the to the area of private uh, morality 
uh, which is hopelessly not applicable to to any public actual issues. So, so um, I think I'm trying to work on two two boats now. Like I'm continuing to investigate this uh, this problem of. Uh, with which I started already in my dissertation, which concerns uh, uh, wrongdoing and the question of how it how it is that people do wrong and become guilty and how do they deal with their responsibility, with their remorse. So I'm basically interested in the sort of dark side of moral life. And I think I found some uninvestigated areas in which I can contribute basically uh, relying on the concept of self-deception and in the way people deceive themselves into doing something they shouldn't be doing. And then afterwards, uh, the ways in in which they can overcome the self-deception and become become remorseful and so on and so on. But you can guess that this is not something that really applies to public domains, even though it's sort of... Uh, <laughs> gives you some some background in in uh, in moral psychology so after maternity leave i i felt i should start something new so i started to and also i became really angry about the political situation in czech republic so that was two incentives to get me very passionate about writing about populists and uh, but but i'm still learning it's it's a difficult uh, difficult i think to write to find the right way to write about about these things so um yeah i'm basically a beginner in this in this domain and and i i have a few topics that i would really like to write about some interesting vices that i think are very very actual but uh, again not very well investigated such as the vice of cowardice i think that's a totally underrated vice and uh, we should speak about it more it's a very nice vice a really <laughs> lovely vice or uh, the the virtue of patience uh, that's my favorite i would like to write more about it but that's you know if we have time we can <laughs> yeah we should talk more about the vices on the dark side yeah, it's far more interesting. No. <laughs> dark side of the podcast. The dark side of the podcast. Um, so I, I don't really have like a final question. No, I think we can. But yeah, is there anything else, any last addition to this? Or should we wrap it up? I think we should wrap it up and say have a good evening and a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>